How's it going, fantasy nerds? Welcome back to the Inking Out Loud podcast. For episode 74, we're jumping into the second of Brandon Sanderson's Mistborn novels, The Well of Ascension. I'm your host, Rob Santos, and I'm joined, as I always am, by my co-host, Drew McCaffrey. How's it going, everybody? And we're only going to be talking about the first half of the book today, which is to say everything through chapter 31. So, Drew, my man, take it away, man. Give us a quick recap of what happened in the first half of Mistborn, The Well of Ascension. Alright. We principally follow three characters, Vin, Elend, and Sazed. Sazed is out uh, in the kind of the outer reaches of what used to be the final empire, now spreading knowledge, teaching ska villagers, and, and generally trying to uh, you know, kickstart society again now that the Lord Ruler has been overthrown. But while he's doing this, Marsh shows up out of nowhere, uh, being all creepy, and says, look, you gotta come with me, something's up, the, uh, all the Inquisitors have disappeared. And so they travel to the conventicle of Saren, where uh, they discover it is indeed empty, and Sezed stumbles across a, an account written by Quan and uh, carved into metal. And that is the text that we are reading in the epigraphs here. But uh, before you know, he can really go too far down that road, uh, the mists have been out during the day and killing people. And Sezed finally comes to the realization he needs to head back to Luthadel and let uh, Elend and Vin and the rest know about this. On his way back, he stumbles across a Coloss army under the control of now-King Justus Lacal. He arrives in Luthadel with news of that army, but he's not the only one who arrived in Luthadel, and that was two other armies under the command of Strathventure, Ellen's father, and Lord Set. And uh, Lord Set arrived with an army as well as Breeze and his daughter Alrian, who have their own thing going on. <laughs> So Luthadel is besieged by three armies, or well, will be besieged by a third army, the Coloss, and uh, Vin and Elend are trying to keep Elend's new government together. Vin is dealing with kind of the assassin protection side of things. Uh, there is a mist spirit that has become, uh, become a appearing to her, as well as a watcher, a mysterious mistborn in the night, who is, is revealed is Zane, Elend's half-brother. Along the way, Vin and uh, her Chandra, Orasur, uh, come to a new arrangement where Orasur gets the body of a dog. But in, on the theme of Chandra, Vin discovers a dead guy, basically, a body, and they realize, oh guy. no, there's a Chandra around. And that kicks off one of the principal mysteries of this book. Elend, meanwhile, is king in, in Luthadel, but he has an assembly in a, a sort of pseudo-democratic situation. And it's not going well for him with the stresses of, you know, the, the siege and, and the pressure of Strathventure and Lord Set. Elend is voted out as king. And at the very end of this, uh, Lord Set is put forth as the new option for king. So, there's a lot happening, even though there's yes. not a lot happening. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> One of the uh, longest, I think... Uh, you know, synopses that I've done on this show so far. It's good, though. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. I'm sure those who are, who are reading this book for the first time are also appreciating the hell out of that as well. I think I'll let you open up the style, since knowing you as long as I have, I'm fairly certain you have something to say about pacing, or several somethings to say about pacing for this <laughs> book, so I just want to want to open it up and ask you that question, dude. Pacing. General impressions. Let's start. 
So, yes. There, there's uh, an interesting phenomenon with the way this book is paced and what actually happens on the page. And I think there's a, a contrast there. The first half of this book is very slowly paced. Very slowly paced. Very little has happened to move the plot forward. However, there have been tons of action scenes. Nearly every chapter with Vin is some sort of misborn sparring or, you know, with, with Zane or, you know, she's fighting off assassins at the very beginning. You know, she's uh, saving sparring Breeze. with Ham. She's <laughs> saving Breeze. Yeah. She's, you know, jumping up onto the walls to deflect a, uh, you know, a, a faint attack. You know, there there's a lot of action around Vin and there's a lot of action in general in this. But the pace is still slow. And that's, you know, like I said, there there's just a lot of setup going on. You know, we, we get news very early in the book of Strathventure's army appearing, but nothing really happens with that. And then Lord Set's army shows up, and nothing really happens with that until right at the end of this segment, when Ellen finally goes and meets his father, and we find out just how duplicitous Strath is. And then he's coming back, he finds out he's been removed as king, and we have the assembly meeting where Set takes off his ska clothes and Lord Penrod nominates him as king and everybody's like, oh crap. But that's really, yeah, that's in chapter 30, 31, you know? This is 300 pages into the book before things really start moving with the plot. And that is a problem that I have with this book. You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna counter that and say I really have absolutely no problem with the pacing of this book. I have I have admitted in the past that it is by far the slowest book in the series, and I would say Sanderson's second slowest book overall. But there's just so much character development happening in in the first half of this book, which I, it does surprise me to hear you say that you do have, like you say to use your words, you do have a problem, maybe not even a huge problem, but some problem with the pacing of this one, because you said this same thing, well not this same thing, but you said something very similar to what I just did about the speed of the character development in Elantris, in our first two episodes. You mm -hmm. said, yes, it's a very slow book, but there's a lot of character development happening, and there's a lot of, it's very quick in terms of character development, that's how, honestly how I feel about the first half of The Well of Ascension, so I'm totally fine with it. And then, as you say, all these extra action scenes that we get to keep us going, I really, I just, I'm struggling to find how this can be considered slow, or maybe just slower than his average. So, the, it's an interesting comparison to make with Elantris, and why I didn't have a problem so much in Elantris, and I do here, is most of the plot development in Elantris was tied to the character development. A lot of a lot of the conflict in that was internal. Here, it is very external. The only real internal conflicts that we have so far in this book are Vin and and her like assassin, you know, mentality and being like, you know, I have this duty to be Ellen's misborn, and and I can't quite you know jive that with the person that I would want to be for Ellen on a different level, and then Ellen's conflict with being a king. Yeah, that's and I was gonna say. That. Of those two, only Ellen has any real development with that. Vin yeah. is stuck in stasis. She she doesn't change in the first part of this book. No, Ellen she... starts to change once Tindwill shows up. Yeah. But that's and... so so there's really only character development for one of our three principal characters, and there's very little plot development external to them. And that's why I think it's slow uh, slow paced. You're right. Maybe, maybe I'll, I'll change what I said, or I'll, I'll backtrack just a little bit and say there's a lot of conflict introduced in terms of their character development. 
particularly with with Ellen and his his struggle to you know his struggle with his own morality as it kind of uh, edges out his effectiveness and his ability to actually mm -hmm. keep everybody pointed in in the same direction in the face of all this chaos and everything. Uh, right. I it it's slower than than I'm used to for from a Sanderson book, but I still myself I, I mean there's so much to glean out of what's what's actually happening behind the scenes. Maybe it's just because I have so much context, so I'm also picking up on all these hints that are seated that somebody reading it for the first time might not pick up on at this point well probably wouldn't pick up on at this point let's yeah. be real sanderson's pretty good at hiding things in plain sight but i i just i don't have a problem with the pacing of this book i love it okay yeah i mean i i will say it, it got to the point where ellen in this first half of the book was the saving grace for me i looked forward mm. to getting more ellen chapters which is a pretty dramatic shift from yep. You know what we talked about Ellen's character being in the first book, where you know you you and Daniel referred to him as you know like white bread. I think at <laughs> I one said point. if he was and, a spice, he would be flour. Yeah, yeah and and, uh, and and just here his character is much more dynamic, much rounder, you know, more compelling. And like I said, to the point where I I looked forward to reading his chapters the most out of the three. See, there's 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 more a couple more style points I want to get out of the way, but you are bringing up so many things that I already have to talk about regarding Vin and Ellen and their relationship too. Particularly when you say uh, that Ellen is more dynamic, I I'm definitely going to referring to be referring to that in a few minutes, definitely. Uh, but for but for styles here, I I want to actually talk about. Uh, the chapter epigraphs. I mean, how would it be a proper discussion of a Cosmere book if we didn't discuss the epigraphs? Uh, we're, we're reading now from the words of Quan, the ancient Terrace Worldbringer, who took it upon himself to become the announce. It is the announcer, right? Not Holy First Witness? I just realized I might have written down the wrong one. The announcer. Uh, yeah, the announcer. Oh, uh, man, I might it's actually, actually hard to keep straight. Hold <laughs> on, I might have actually, we might, we might bleep that out for a spoiler, but, um, Quan was the one who announced that he had found the Hero of Ages a thousand years yes. before. The one, the, the Hero of Ages that Rashik ended up killing to take the power of the Well of Ascension himself. And these writings are coming from the wall inside the conventicle of Saren, which is odd for reasons I'm going to be getting into in a future episode. But, um... Yeah, like these chapter epigraphs, how cool are they? I do like them. Uh, I came to a new level of appreciation for the epigraphs in the first book as I read through it, you know, just for these last couple of episodes. But I still think the epigraphs in this book are much better. They're, there's more of a, an immediate interest in them. They carry this this ominous weight, and especially with how they start, you know, you know, I uh, what is it, like I, I set these words in in steel for uh, yeah, anything not written in I, stone or in steel can't be cannot be trusted. Yeah, I, I write these words in steel for anything not set in metal cannot be trusted. Like Something that right there, like bam! What what a what a way to start the book off. Yeah. You know? Yeah, and I, I think it's something to be said also the fact that we've 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 already learned exactly where these epigraphs are coming from right off the bat. Mm -hmm. I mean, we didn't find that out in, in Mistborn the Final Empire until, what was it, halfway through the book? After they're, after Vin uh, and Kelsier infiltrated? No, not halfway through, but like a third yeah, of the way a little, through. Yeah, a little before halfway through. Yeah. But we, th yeah, this was fairly early on, um, yeah. maybe like chapter 9 or 10. Oh, if that. I was thinking like 7 yeah. or 8. Maybe. I don't know, actually. Yeah, it was it was early. It was pretty early. Mm. Yeah. Uh, the, the epigraphs are, are, are awesome. I mean, I... The, 
I'm getting more of an appreciation for them now, just because of of this deeper dive that I'm doing for the podcast. I, I like before I was always really interested in the Lord Ruler, or actually the one who should have been the Lord Ruler, Alendi, the original Hero of Ages. And I'm also very interested in the epigraphs in Hero of Ages itself for different reasons. I'm not going to get into at the moment. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so these ones kind of just fell by the wayside. They, they, I was not as interested in them. But now that I'm picking them apart, I'm finding a lot of things to discuss in our theory crafting segments. Um, and I'm going to be bringing up one or two points there later in the episode. But I definitely want to say that these chapter epigraphs are, are something different when I'm, I'm paying attention to every word. They really are. Yeah, and, and they're, they're well written. You know, it's... Mm. Agreed there's a certain voice that comes through them that lends them this like weight of antiquity and knowledge that uh you know helps make them more compelling mm-hmm. i think overall they're they're very well done yeah they they do they do give that flavor of of uh of impending doom of regret of of being frantic you can see him shaking as he writes these things it's and 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 just bears his soul and all of his mistakes it's very very interesting the the, the man kwan he was some, I would. I, I hope that we find out more about him someday. I don't know what I want to find out, but I do want to know more, and I hope we do find out more someday. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, going forward, still with style. I also, I mean, I, I bring this up every single time I notice it, but I love talking about it. Dramatic irony, again. Uh, this play between Ellen and Vin and the relationship, it just kills me. I love it. I mean, there's there's a notable moment in the second half of this book that I'm not going to talk about yet. Everybody who's read it knows already what I'm talking about. But there's another <laughs> moment here in the first half that I hadn't noticed until this read. And I don't know if it's just a lack of having paid attention at this particular moment before now, but I never realized that after Zane preaches to Vin about Ellen and or or everybody there not understanding her and how nobody in her life can truly love her if they don't understand her. Ellen <laughs> immediately after that has a conversation with Tindwill. I think it's when she's confronting him about not having married Vin yet, and Ellen either thinks or he outright says that he doesn't understand her, but he loves her nonetheless. I don't remember mm-hmm. if he actually said that or actually or thought that. It's kind of hazy at the mo- at the moment. But it was definitely there. The thought was definitely there. And I just thought it was really, really neatly done on Sanderson's part. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's all kinds of dramatic irony in these books. Um, just, you know, sign of, a, sign of a writer who can set things up in a, you know, a compelling way. In a strategic mm. way. You know, to, you know, even though it may be, you know, not as fast-paced, he, he finds ways to draw the reader along. And it's with little interactions and things like that. You know, to make you care about the characters. Yeah. He adds a lot of humor, I've noticed as well. You know, a lot of humor that we didn't necessarily have, and at least we didn't necessarily have from Vin in the last book. Like yeah, this yeah. line that she has when she walks in after Alrian uh, arrives. Like, all right, what was that pink thing I just passed in the hallway? Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> I don't even know what to make of that line or why I love it so much. It's not, like, overtly badass. It's definitely like a, like a tough girl thing to say, but it's not what endears me to Vin in this particular moment. It's just such a stark reminder of what kind, just the kind yeah, of woman Vin is. It's a snark, you know. It's it's the the yeah. willingness to poke, you know, at other things and other people. That... Yeah. It, how it had how it could, yeah. how she contrasts so hilariously to a person like Alrion that 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 juxtaposition just works in such a comedic way, uh-huh. you know. Yeah, okay. yeah, I mean, yeah, sorry, I was yawning. <laughs> okay, I thought um, I, yeah. 
but but no, it's the uh, the contrast between Vin and Alrion there. You know, like Alrion's wearing kind of like the pink dress, and she's got the bright hair, and mm. and and she's she's got the bubbly personality, and then Vin, dark hair, dark eyes, dark clothes, dark Stoic, personality. Cold, you know, like. Distant. <laughs> tough blunt yeah like we, we got like we didn't really see a whole lot of of, of Alrianne's flavor of of femininity in, in the last book i mean we got characters like sean alariel who she was not like that at all she no. wasn't bubbly in personality we got a little bit of that with lady cliss but yeah not not obnoxious and in your face about it you know and and, and vin herself is, is coming into herself a lot more in this volume as like as as a contrast like she's navigating her world as a touchstone without kelsier and it may have been because Kelsier was so much more vibrant with his humor, but now that he's gone, for me, like, Vin is starting to step into that light a little more. It's a little heartwarming, and I think it's very appropriate for, you know, both as a mark in her journey as a character, but to also to keep our spirits up through what is widely known as some of Brandon's, like I said, slower-paced writing. I don't have a problem with it, but I can't deny that a lot of people still are, are saying the same thing, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, do you have anything else for style? Just one more, and that is these mysteries that were given. I want to get your, uh, I want to get a feel for what you think on them because I remember, like, I remember the mystery of the com- the Condra impersonator. I always remember that going back into this, but I managed to forget every time the mist spirit, or at least that it arrives this early in the narrative, and all these hmm. sudden deaths in the countryside as the mists like they start lingering during the daytime. Like we don't yet know how it's all connected. But we definitely get the sense that something is very, very wrong with the world now. So how did you feel about these, for lack of a better term, puzzle pieces that were given this early on? Do you think it's too much? Or no, I don't enough? think it's too much. Um, <laughs> or just enough, I should say. It isn't necessarily too much. Uh, but it, it is something that Brandon has gotten better at doing over the years uh, in in how he constructs his plots where nowadays if if he were to sit down and write this book they would be staggered more so that you you wouldn't have a bunch of mysteries all introduced at the beginning and then progression you know even progression across all the mysteries so that you get this massive you know climax Brandon Sanderson avalanche whatever you want to call it everything falls at the end in of place the book, yeah yeah all at once Nowadays, what he tries to do more is like, you know, he has plot A and mystery B and mystery C, and he staggers the development in them so that you get a, a much smoother arc in in the pacing. And the climax tends to last a little longer, but it isn't as like overwhelmingly yeah. bombastic all at once. Yeah, as you, as you start to get really, really invested in one mystery and the other ones start to fade into the background, one of those other ones comes back and bites you. You know, again and again. Yeah, and yeah. And and usually, you know, like, mystery A will be solved two-thirds of the way through the book, and mystery B, 80% of the way through the book, and then mystery C will be wrapped up at the end of the climax. You know, like, instead of all of them developing at the same speed and all being revealed at the same time. Mm. I can, you know, I, I think I honestly prefer the older style, if we're comparing the two. I do prefer everything to fall into place at the same moment. Just the, the fireworks that go off. I, you know, I'm just not going to keep, keep talking, because the end of Hero of Ages is so good. Oh my goodness! <laughs> but um, yeah, that's everything I have to talk about with style. I'm ready to go into characters. Okay. Vin. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think... yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. 
Uh, I've already discussed a lot of what I was what I was what I'd already written down for Vin there during our style discussion. When I was talking a little bit about humor and dramatic irony, but I do want to say that I'm definitely finding her to be more engaging at this point in the Well of Ascension, at least as opposed to the Final Empire. Like she was, she's got a lot of fun about her, even like even if she's just going about some things matter-of-factly. Like, of course, there's that epic scene that I referred to at the beginning where she uses Duralumin, not for the first time, but for the first time with intent, launching herself from the city wall, running along with Breeze. She winks at him. It starts just mm -hmm. blasting horses and men apart in every direction. Like, she's such a little badass. I, I love it. So, I disagree. Oh? I liked her more through the first half of final empire that i do through the first half of well of ascension and a big part of that is because it, the frustrating lack of development with her where it, it seems like it's just over and over and over again oh i'm gonna go spar with the watcher up oh, i'm gonna go chase the mist spirit and and i got tired of those scenes pretty quickly this time around where i i would find my eyes kind of glazing over the descriptions of the allomancy and the steel pushing i'm like i i it just doesn't matter, essentially. I don't need all of this description again. And I I would much rather be reading dialogue or conversation, something that is more immediately dynamic for her character, rather than just some cool set pieces. Okay, I can actually agree with a lot of what you just said, very specifically talking about the allomantic uh, the sparring between her and Zane, or her and Ham at one point that happens too. Um, yeah, like, I'm, I'm really not paying attention in my head. I'm not plotting out the actual fight scene as I normally am with a lot of other of Sanderson's uh, action scenes. I'm definitely not, like, plotting it out and following along. I'm just looking for, at the dialogue at this point. Just, maybe it's because I've been through it so many times. I do understand what you're saying there in that, like, as I'm going through reading her sparring with Zane for the second time, for the third time, I am getting maybe, perhaps a little bored of it, but... I don't know, like, Vin, to me, is so much cooler in the second book than she was in the first book that I'm, I guess I kind of just let it slide. It doesn't bother me as much. I don't know. Yeah, I I just don't enjoy her character very much through the first half of this book. Yeah, I, I don't particularly get her fascination with Zane, or even her even her fascination with the mists and, and how he seems, how Zane seems to be getting into her head and separating her from all of, all of those that she already trusts and loves. But she can't be perfect, else she'd be downright boring, I say. And, and I remember during our previous episodes in the last book, saying that she wasn't particularly exciting of a character to me. Um, and now she is. And, and if it means bringing more of her conflict to the light, then I say so be it. It makes her more dynamic. And this is something I've, that, that I focused on what you had said a few minutes previously. And maybe this is what I'll say she's been missing a little, in my opinion, in The Final Empire. I saw her in that book as a little bit rigid uh important but static monotone and now she's vibrant i think all of her characters she hasn't changed you're right when you say she doesn't change at all in the first half of this book but she has changed a lot in the year that took place between the final empire and this book she's definitely reading very differently in this book although you're right from page one to page 300 there's not a lot of growth there that's all ellen who actually does the visible growth in the first half of this book yeah yeah, pretty much. Um, but uh, my, my last point about Vin, though, are just her interactions with Orisur. And how, like, how, I, I, like, this is very, very indicative of what I was just talking about. She opens up to him in a way that she really hasn't with anyone else. 
even with Kelsier or Elland in a lot of ways, or Sazed in a lot of ways, and in return, though Orisur clearly despises humans, he's opening up a little bit about his own fears. And, and these two are sort of perfect for one another in terms of helping them get over their false impressions or their prejudices. You know, one's overcoming a fresh knee-jerk reaction, like, oh, he ate Kelsier, I don't want him around. Mm -hmm. And the other one, he's, he's, he's trying to turn over centuries-long disgruntlement. So I thought it was some pretty neat character work, honestly. Yeah, they do make good foils, or, or uh, not foils, but rather uh, compliments to each other. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the way that relationship between them grows is probably the best part of Vin in the first half of this book, in my opinion. Uh, I'd be tempted to agree. Seeing, yep. seeing the very slow change in attitude between the both of them. Uh, you know, Vin going from, like, the way he's described in her mind, um, the in the early scenes, when he's in the, the human body, you know, like, you get this idea of, like, an awkward kind of, you know, gets in the way, annoying. Yep. And then, once Orasur is in the dog body, uh, Vin's, the way she thinks about him changes to where... You know, she's considering like how to use him tactically, and and the language she uses to describe him is much more flattering than than how she describes him when he's in the human hmm. body at the beginning. Wow, I hadn't actually paid attention to that, but I'm definitely going to be on future rereads. Yeah, that's that's interesting. That would be so cool if that like if Sanderson did that intentionally. Oh my god. Oh, I'm sure he did. That's just freaking awesome that's a that's a really really neat way to apply uh the subjective third person <laughs> in terms mm -hmm. of exposition that's actually awesome mm -hmm. hmm. that's everything i have to say about vin though i'm ready to talk about ellen my uh my favorite character for the first half of this book anything yeah. else about yeah. vin do you have i'm done with my vin points cool all right ellen ellen venture you know all of the character growth that we get in the first half of this book as i just said a minute ago and i i know i just myself just finished praising vin for her growth but like i said i feel like the, the vast majority of her of her growth actually happened in the interim, like in between the final empire and the start of this book in the year that's passed. She starts this book like a new character in many ways, but Alan is, is beginning that exact same awkward scholar that we left him off as in the final empire, and he's just starting to change now. Mm -hmm. um, and it is some of my favorite character work that Brandon's ever done. Uh, for my, my first read... Tindwell's pointing out a lot of Ellen's mannerisms that I hadn't noticed at that point yet, but now that I know them, they stand out, so I'm I am cheering her on when when she is when she is confronting him about his constant now see and his um and all of these mannerisms yeah. that he has that are just so so repeated. I was I was actually kind of like cheering her on when she was calling him out on his BS. There, it was good. Yeah, she can be abrasive, Tindwell can, but I I like her, and she is another character who's a good complement for Ellen in this book. Uh, we, we sort of have these pairings uh, with the main characters where uh, we have Vin and, and Orasur, and then we have Elend and Tindwil, and we have Sezed and Marsh. Uh, and, and each of them play off the other, you know, in, in cool ways. Yeah, uh, they definitely do. You're right. It's like every single character has a very particular... Uh, I don't know. They, they, they have a very... 
God, what am I trying to say here? There's one character who, 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 they, who they speak to who is with them on one specific wavelength. Vin and Orisir have, have an understanding. Elend and Vin have an understanding. Elend and Tindwil have an understanding. Even like Vin and Ham, Vin and Breed, they each have their own respective understandings in, in their the way that they just behave around one another or speak to one another. Um, mm-hmm. It's it's very noticeable, but I, I like it, and I, and I like what's happening with Ellen for the first half of this book because we get that character growth that that which we're missing a little bit on Vin's side. And I also have to say, one of the dopest outfits in modern fantasy, that brilliant white <laughs> in this white world suit, of ash yeah. and fire and mist, it's a really really nice aesthetic touch, you know. Yeah, I've always been a fan of it. I cosplayed I as Ellen once. So, yeah, you know. I know you have. <laughs> First time I ever I ever met Drew McAfee, I, I don't know we've said it, probably once or twice in the podcast already, but you were cosplaying as Ellen Venture, and I was like, who dis? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Ellen, the, the way he changes is fun in this book, because the ways he's changing are, are putting away the frustrating and the boring aspects of him, and making him a more interesting character. And a less frustrating character. Whereas, you know, that is not always the case with a main character, you know, changing through the course of a book. He's still making mistakes, of course, but he is growing. And he's growing in, in like, aesthetically pleasing ways for the reader. And that helps it a lot. So, like, not only is his character, you know, uh, dynamic, his, his character arc is moving at a pretty good clip. But it's moving in a good direction. Agreed. And it's only it's only going uphill, even going forward, which I like. Maybe again, that's that's something I have part, with, yeah. I have context for. But yeah, uh, that that also fills out everything I have to say about Alan for the first half. I'm going to have a lot more to say about him in the second half than I even did just now. Yes. <laughs> uh, anything else about Ellen, though? Um. Eh, no, I I don't have anything I really need to say that I can't expound upon more right. next not time. yet yeah okay uh the only other character i have specific points about is zane should we talk about zane real quick sure yeah so zane is just perfectly creepy right perfectly creepy that's how i wrote him down it's like that first line that we get from his point of view is four words kill him god whispered like mm-hmm. Wow, this guy is dark from the get-go. And the re- the re- oh my god, revelation. The revelation that he's Ellen's brother kind of rocked me a little bit on my first read, I'm not going to lie, and I'm kind of embarrassed to admit that now as it seems really obvious, but there it is, you know, all the same. His Zane's interactions with Straff are what really really get me uh get me invested if you can if you can use that word invested not in him as a character but in in what he's doing his actions behind the scenes if it's morbid but it's fascinating to watch him talk with his father he's actively and openly trying to commit patricide and he's still just being belittled and shamed despite his incredible power i think brandon nailed this character if the feeling he was going for was just unsettling yeah yeah, I I can agree with that. Um, I like the mystery built into his character. Like, what is the deal with this insane voice, this god that's talking to him? You know, the there are a lot more mysteries in this what? book than there were in the first book. Like, like at, every character has at least like 
two mysteries tied into their plot line. And <laughs> seems like it. Yeah. It, it, and like I said, it's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, and I don't think it's too much because they are good mysteries. They're interesting. Uh, it, it just is a lot and it is noteworthy for how many separate mysteries we have. You know, we have, what is this thumping that Vin hears? What is the mist spirit? What is the deal with God talking to Zane? You know, what is the deal with the mists showing up earlier in, in the day? You know, like, who is the Condra? Who's the Condra? Yeah. You, know, <laughs> you know, we have so many mysteries here. So, yeah, and, and Zane plays a nice role. And I thought it was a good idea on Brandon's part to give him points of view to help make his mystery more compelling. Where did the Inquisitors go? That's something that yeah. I still, I mean, like, you know, I can't expand upon that for, for obvious reasons. But, like, where did the, I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, but that's, that's something that's all... we'll have to talk about next book. Yeah, that's all but... of my character points for today, at least. Well, so I wanted to just bring up that I like how the other members of the crew are getting a little more room in this book. Uh, Spook, especially. We get a lot more Spook here. He he is developing as a character much more, you know, in the last book he didn't change at all. He was just like the awkward, shy kid, you know, yeah. who had a yeah, crush yeah. on Vin. And now, like, we're, we're seeing him as a young man and, like, finding his own way in life. And then, you know, we, we get more with Breeze with, and Orianne, where, you know, there's, uh, there's more going on with his character than there was in the first book. And then, again, with Clubs, we see a different side of Clubs training the army and being a general. And he's still, you know, the, the grumpy kind of, you know... Uh, gravelly voiced grandfatherly type <laughs> dude but we get Curmudgeon to see lead. a different side of him and and so we're getting to see that with all of these characters you know with dachshund where we see dachshund you know in his element as a bureaucrat but we're also seeing oh he and ellen don't get along you know yeah there there's there's more coming out of on each of the crew members and i appreciate that yeah, no, you're absolutely right, and I think, well, I mean, I, don't, I shouldn't say I think, I think it's pretty easy to tell that a lot of this room that Sanderson has uh, to, to fully, you know, flesh out these characters, particularly in respect with one another, comes from his <clears throat> lack of needing to introduce them. I mean, we already, we're already very familiar with every single one of these characters, some more so than others, but we do have familiarity with each and every one of them in their own way, so saved having to give us context as to who they are and how they act, you know, he, he's, he left himself, as with his, I would imagine it's pretty common with a second book in any series, these characters really, really breathe a lot more. And I definitely well, notice it and appreciate it. What I think the real kicker is in giving them room to breathe and grow more is that there's no Kelsier around now. There's, Again, there's the more page time agency. to devote to the other members yes. of the crew. And so much of the first book was everybody reacting to Kelsier. It's yeah. like, you know, how do you handle Kelsier? And now he's not there, and they get to do their own things. They don't have to work in Kelsier's shadow anymore. So that helps a lot. Yeah, and I think that's something that would break Kelsier's heart to hear. <laughs> <laughs> but it's true. It's very, very true. Um, yeah. Yeah, that wraps up all of my character discussions. I'm ready to talk very, very briefly about our Cosmere and miscellaneous things here. Okay, so going from here on forward, spoilers inbound for the entire Cosmere. All right, don't say I didn't yeah. warn you. <laughs> okay, I um the first thing I want to talk about is something I 
noticed this time around, specifically this time around. I don't know. I don't know if I'm just chasing a a, a ghost here, but um, I'll, I'll I'll let you know what I think here. So the epigraphs piqued my interest this time. There was a particular uh -huh. moment when you know I'll just quote it to you because I have the quote here. So one chapter. I think this is these are in the twenties. However, during my time with Elendi, I could not help but become more interested in the anticipation, that being a capitonym, anticipation. Mm -hmm. He seemed to fit the signs so well. Keep that in mind. He seemed to fit the signs so well. He was born, the next chapter, epigraph, he was born of a humble family, yet married the daughter of a king. So, clearly this is something that the terrorists, uh, myths and legends about the Hero of Ages ascribe. You know, he's, he married, he was uh, born of a humble family. Family? Family, wow. But he married the daughter of a king. Sazed doesn't fall under anything remotely resembling that. He's, he was never married, but as we know, Sazed is the hero of ages. Why would the terrorist myths be saying something like this? Because there are others that uh, Sazed does, of course. I, I think this is one of those early hints about ruin changing the prophecies to fit Elendi. But surely they, they ultimately were supposed to fit Sazed. At least that's how it's presented at the end yes, of Hero of Ages, yeah. right? So if there was something in the Terrace Prophecy about born of humble beginnings marrying the daughter of a king, that was something that Ruin added. Oh, oh, yeah, I was thinking of this backwards. Okay, I thought you meant like, okay, Ruin changed it from the original, this being the original. No. Well, you meant the other way around. Okay, that yeah. Ruin changed it to this. Yes. Got you. Okay. And, and we don't know okay. what the exact wording was. But Ruin was. was imprisoned at that time. He couldn't have done that. Of course, the prison was... Yeah, yeah, he could. That's the whole reason that Quan had to write his words in steel. Yeah, but Ruin was still imprisoned at the Well Ruin... of Ascension. Yeah, and Ruin is still imprisoned in the Well of Ascension in this book, and he's changing the words from Sazed and Tindwell's research. The, the well is almost... Yeah, okay. Yeah, because yeah. also we know Kelsier can see from... The cognitive realm that ruin is still influence. He's still traveling yeah. out in waves, but mm -hmm. I like to to go forward. Just a couple more of the epigraphs that are immediately following this, just just to give more context. He could trade words with the finest of philosophers and had an impressive memory, nearly as good even as my own. Yet he was not argumentative. The terrorists rejected him, but he came to lead them. I mean that that is classic Sazed right there. Mm -hmm. uh, he left ruin in his wake. I just realized that they actually used the word ruin there. Yes, I did oh my notice God. that. I didn't notice that until just now. You're hearing my reaction to it live right now. <laughs> but it was forgotten. He created kingdoms and then destroyed them as he made the world anew. There were other proofs to connect Elendi to the Hero of Ages. Smaller things. Things that only one trained in the lore of the Anticipation would have noticed. But as you're saying, as you're, as you're putting forth now, that could be actually something that Ruin changed it to, not changed it away from. I mm -hmm. didn't consider that. Well put. Mm -hmm. What about you? I only have one other small little hat. I like that little detail moment, but uh, I'll give you a chance to dive in if there's anything lore that you want to talk about. There is. Okay. And this is Hit a me. continuity thing, and I, I haven't opened oh. my, you know, anniversary leather-bound editions uh, okay. to, to check and see if it's been changed yet. In... The Final Empire. Kelsier talks about hunting down myths about the 11th metal. Yeah. And he says he found them in the north. Did he? Or in, he the the 11th, in the 11th metal, 
he's in the northern parts of the western dominance when okay. he finds you know the, yeah. the book at the beginning of this book Sazed specifically went to where Kelsier talked about finding the rumors because he's like I want to independently corroborate these I want to find these rumors but Sazed went south Oh, Sazed is in the that. southern dominance at the beginning of this book and I don't know if that is uh, a subtle nod to ruin changing things like messing with records somewhere Okay. If, like, Sazed perhaps wrote down, like, you know, made notes, and then Ruin changed them before he put them in his compromise. Okay, yeah, yeah, Or yeah, if I it is just a uh, a continuity error. But I did notice that this time. I, I don't think I ever would have noticed that if you hadn't brought it up. Yeah. That's interesting, though. Huh. Yeah, and What's so I, I need to check my, you know, my leather-bound anniversary versions, because I know there were a lot of fixes made, um... Not just to continuity things, but also to the pros, you know, to make it flow better and things like that. Uh, but I, I just haven't had the, the chance to go digging in there and, and find out yet. So hmm. Okay. Yeah, no, my, my only other uh, miscellaneous point here, and this actually isn't even a spoiler for it. Well, I guess this would be a spoiler later for this book, but not for the Cosmere as a whole. In Chapter 20, there's a little hint that I just, a little nugget that I just picked up on, a breadcrumb that I just found. And I'm like, oh my god, how did I skip this detail before? Doxin states that the Assembly wishes to discuss an issue with Elland regarding counterfeit coins. I was like, I, are you serious right now? When I realized just what that was implying and that just uh, that little bit of thumbing his nose that Sanderson must have done at that moment when he was writing, I was like, oh man. 50 reads until I found that one. You feel all the dumber for it, but there it is. I loved it. Well, maybe I'm dumb. What? Uh, nothing is springing to my mind. What? What are you picking up on there? That uh, Jasty's Lecal is paying for the Coloss with counterfeit coins. Oh, oh, okay, right. Okay. And some of them are that's, finding their way that's to your, That's your connection there. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Sorry, I, I, maybe I should have said that actually. Yeah. Yeah, I was really I was in the like, moment when I wrote down that point. I only wrote down like twelve words here about it. Yeah, I, I was trying to think of like Cosmere related, like no, no. I, I, that's why uh, I started this off by saying it's not a Cosmere wide <laughs> spoiler. It's just an end of this book spoiler, or like mm, the second half mm -hmm. of this book spoiler. Yeah. Okay. I thought that was yeah, a really yeah, neat little sense. breadcrumb there on Sanderson's part. So, and that's everything I have for uh, miscellaneous points. You want to do uh, predictions for the next book? <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> I was like, I'm uh, just kidding. I just wanted to see I, the look on I, your face to see what yes. you say. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, um, man, we would we would nail every one of those, dude. Yeah, yeah. There's my first now, F bomb for this episode. As as far as uh, you know, just like some miscellaneous thoughts, I like the way uh, you know Vin has been trying to discover more about Alamancy in this. I you know I I like the inclusion of Duralamin the way Brandon is continuing to expand the magic where, you know, he, he gave us so many seeds and hints of things in the first book. And then here he's starting to fulfill those promises and, and flesh it out. Uh, I, I like that a lot. Um, and I especially like Duralumin as a metal. I think it's one of the coolest of the Alamantic metals just for what it can do. Yeah. And we don't even know entirely what all it could do. No, like, not yet. We, and we still we, don't. Yeah. It's it's going to be very interesting going forward to see what other cool applications for Duralumin 
Brandon comes up with in, you know, maybe Mistborn Era 3, Mistborn Era 4. Like, there, it's going to be fun. Hmm. Well said. Totally agreed. Ditto. Um, I can't believe I'm saying this this early into an episode, but that's pretty much everything I have to say about the first half of The Well of Ascension. What are we, like, 50 minutes in? Not even? Not 45. Not even. Oh, my God. Yeah, this is this is a fast one. I, I will say we were <laughs> going to have a guest, uh, but the guest was unable to make it this week. Yep. Um, she should be back uh, to, to join us next week. Yep, she should. Um, so that, that definitely impacts how long the episode was here. But but also, this is you know ties back to my point at the beginning, how there just isn't really all that much that happens, despite this being, you know, a pretty big chunk of book. Like I mean, we're we're on at least in my paperback. Uh, page 372 372 pages of well of ascension and we just cruised through all of our talking points in 45 minutes like (laughs) yeah yeah you know that that says a lot in itself yeah of course next week we have another 370 380 pages oh boy and and that is going to be a, a totally different animal. <laughs> and we're also going to have, as... you know, uh, yeah, as we were saying, we're going to have another guest, and we're going to have the ending of this book to talk about, and we're going to have listener questions about the book yes. itself. <laughs> so it's going to be a significantly longer. I think every bit that we actually saved on this episode is just going to be tacked on to the next one, if I know us as I think I do. Pretty much. Pretty much. So on yep. that note, uh, shall we head on into the final draft? I agree. And I'll start since I am, once again, you know, being boring, as I normally am. Um, I shouldn't say I've been boring lately. I've had a few good entries, I think, lately. But today, I'm also just going sober. I'm drinking water. Once again, I am just <laughs> liquidating, liquidating, sorry, providing hydration to my organs as I and my throat as I talk for, you know, an hour. I guess I was expecting to be an hour and a half at least on, on a Brandon Sanderson book. But we actually saved some good time today. But yeah, I mean, yeah. just water for me today, and it, it might just be water for next week too. I haven't decided yet. Okay, yeah. So I am drinking a beer from Rogue Ales from Newport, Oregon. Uh, this is a Maybach, a style of German Ooh. German ale. Um, so a Bach is a is a Composer? traditionally Sorry. kind of a, a, a special. Well, B O C K, not B A C H. Yeah, <laughs> just making a stupid um, pun. Uh, it's it traditionally, you know, kind of a special beer brewed in Germany, a stronger, uh, darker ale, very malty. Usually he would clock in at like the seven to eight percent range and they would brew it for like special occasions and things like that. Holidays and, and festivals and seasonal changes and things. My box, uh, are, are kind of a riff on that. They're generally a little lighter in color. Uh, a little lighter in alcohol volume. This one's only 6.8%. And they tend to be a little hoppier and drier instead of like that really malt forward, like, you know, sweetness to it. And that is very true for this beer. It's it's pretty tasty. It's uh, it's refreshing, has a nice dry finish to it. Uh, but as I said, though, this, this beer is uh, dedicated to the inciting incident for one of the biggest mysteries in this story. And it is called... Dead guy ale. <laughs> I even I even repeated it last time. You know when when you said dead guy, for anybody who can go back and, and listen to it again if they so care to do, I uh, I even I even repeated it. I went dead guy because me and my brother and me and my friend have this inside joke because we've watched Bad Boys so many times 
mm. that every time we hear the words in any context whatsoever, the words dead and guy put together, we always have to go <laughs> dead guy. Like it just I did it this episode because it just came out. Nice. <laughs> so I love that. Every single time, every single time for the past few weeks, you have brought on a final draft choice. I accidentally refer to it earlier in the episode. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. It's it's been it's been good. You've been inadvertently setting We're me up and I tangled, man. <laughs> Some spooky action at a distance happening right now. Yeah. But I think that shockingly, this might be our shortest main episode ever. Yeah. Uh, brings us to the end of our talking points for Rune today. Rune of Kings might have been shorter. What do you think? No, Rune of Kings was over an hour, I believe. Like an hour and ten, hour and twelve minutes. Um, but yeah, yeah. So this has been episode 74 of the Inking Out Loud podcast. Next up, as we mentioned, we will be finishing off book two of the Mistborn Era 1 trilogy, The Well of Ascension. We will be doing chapter 32 all the way through the end of the book. And we will have a special guest on for that. If you yeah. want to support the show, check us out on Patreon, patreon.com slash inkingoutloud. You will be able to get access to all kinds of fun things like a monthly newsletter, monthly short fiction written by Rob or me, uh, bonus episodes, uh, depending on the tier you choose, sometimes access to early, you know, or early access to episodes and the ability to request a book for us to cover. Uh, we've done a few of those so far, and we have a few more coming up pretty soon here. So yeah, yep. check us out on Patreon. As always, I am your host, Drew McCaffrey. With me is my co-host, Rob Santos. Yep. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time. Bye, everyone.